on this special bonus episode of the London Lyceum, we bring to you our special edition roundtable on classical theism, trinity, and divine simplicity with special guests Tom McCall, Scott Williams, Oliver Crisp, and Tim Paul. This is an action-packed episode, two hours of awesome content talking all things classical theism related to the Trinity and divine simplicity and just how the great tradition has thought about these things. Is Thomas Aquinas necessary? Is he not? All that fun stuff you're going to find in this episode. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Now, if you aren't familiar with the London Lyceum, uh, we seek to foster a serious thinking for a serious church by creating an intellectual culture of charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. So we're all about thinking. That's why we've put together these roundtables. We want an avenue for serious thinking that can promote things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism with people who think differently and similarly on important topics. So we seek a virtuous sort of thinking that will hopefully encourage you both in thought and deed. And yes, I get questions about this all the time. Uh, For those who are listening live, this will be available on YouTube or your favorite podcast app later. So don't forget to, if you're listening, watching it on there now, you can hit subscribe, like, share, all that sort of stuff. It helps us to produce content and encourage, and it encourages us, and it makes it more impactful. So now let's go ahead and get down to business, because I know you didn't join to listen to me. Uh, You're here to listen to these four esteemed brethren discuss classical theism about Trinity and divine simplicity. So I'm pumped about it. So let me introduce you all to each of these four guys, because they're all brilliant in their own right, and you should know them. So Dr. Tom McCall, he's the Timothy C. and Julie M. Tennant Chair of Theology at Asbury Theological Seminary. He earned his Ph.D. from Calvin Theological Seminary, and he is ordained in the Wesleyan Church and has pastored churches in southwestern Michigan and south-central Alaska. He's authored numerous journal articles and books, including one of my favorites and most recommended books, An Invitation to Analytic Christian Theology. But I don't think he's ever written a bad or even mediocre book, as well as all these other guys here. Um, So the moral of the story is you need to go read them all. Uh, Go get a copy of each book, um, including everybody here. He's also married to Jenny, uh, and they have four children in college, high school, and middle school. Now, Dr. Oliver Crisp is the principal of St. Mary's College and head of the School of Divinity at St. Andrews. He is also the professor of analytic theology and director of the Logos Institute for Analytic and Exegetical Theology. He has a PhD from the University of London and a D.Lit. from Aberdeen, and he's best known for his work in analytic theology, and he's a senior editor of the Journal of Analytic Theology and a series co-editor with Michael Ray of the Oxford Studies in Analytic Theology. You're noticing a theme. Uh, He also organizes the annual Los Angeles Theology Conference series with Professor Fred Sanders and is the co-chair of the Systematic Theology Unit for the American Academy of Religion. And he is the author of too many books and articles to count, but they are all worth your immense study. Dr. Timothy J. Paul is professor of philosophy at the University of St. Paul or St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota, and holds a PhD from St. Louis University in philosophy with specialization in the philosophy of religion, metaphysics, Thomistic philosophy, analytic theology, and moral psychology. His books include Defense In Defense of Conciliar Christology, In Defense of Extended Conciliar Christology, and The Incarnation. Uh, He's currently co-authoring a book for Cambridge with Michael Peterson and Dennis Fenema entitled Jesus and the Genome and is co-editing the Cambridge Companion to Christology with Michael Peterson. 
He's the husband of another philosopher, Faith Paul, and the proud father of one son and four daughters. And finally, we have Dr. Scott M. Williams, who earned a DPhil in Scholastic Theology from Oxford University in 2011. He is currently the Associate Professor of Philosophy at UNC Asheville, and he has research interests uh, include medieval philosophy and theology, philosophy of religion, and philosophy theology of disability. In 2020, he edited Disability and Medieval Christian Philosophy and Theology, and he's currently working on two books on the Trinity. One is a work on historical theology and is called Henry of Ghent on the Trinity, and the other is a philosophical and theological survey of key issues regarding the Trinity and is called The Trinity. So the latter will be published in the forthcoming Cambridge University Press Elements series, Problems of God. He also has two articles on the Trinity coming out later in 2022, one in Journal of Analytic Theology, uh, and the other one is a response to William Hasker and Faith and Philosophy. In addition to teaching and writing about philosophy and theology, he's also an avid gardener and has two doxins. The cited one is called Origin, and his blind brother is called Didymus. Now, two final housekeeping items. First, I, I've got a couple of stacks of books here for guys who are listening, I guess, if you want to see them. Um, so I've got, like, books from Oliver, and i got a book from Tom and other people. I Sorry, Tim, I didn't get any of your books. Uh, OUP wouldn't send them, so uh, best I could do. But for those who are listening, I've got three stacks, so if you want some books, here's what you can do to get them if you're watching live. Just tweet something about the roundtable uh, and just use the hashtag classicaltheismroundtable. And tag us so I know that you did it, and I'll randomly pick three of you, and I'll just send them the books to you free of charge. Now, as far as how this is going to go, if you've done this before, uh, you'll know that we're going to give about eight minutes to everybody uh, with an initial sort of constructive statement. Then we'll give everybody seven or eight minutes to sort of have a chance to reply to what they've heard. And finally, at that point, we'll have a half hour of free discussion, and then we'll conclude with some of your listener questions. So go ahead and chat those in as they come. So now let's let's do this. So our key topic for discussion, classical theism, Trinity, and divine simplicity. So you're thinking the proper way to think about Trinity and simplicity. What's the great tradition thought about these doctrines? Are there only certain formulations that you can subscribe to? Can we reject certain things or affirm various social modules of the Trinity, for example, and remain within the bounds of the ecumenical creeds, etc.? So that's enough of me. Let's go ahead and hand it over to Dr. Tom McCall to go ahead and begin and kick us off, uh, because I think we're all going to enjoy it. So, Dr. McCall, I'll let you go from here. All right. Well, thank you. Um, thanks, Jordan, for the invitation. Um, thanks, Tim and Scott and Oliver. Good to see you guys again. I only wish this were in person. Um, this brings back good memories of, of Logos conferences past and different things of conversations that are similar I have immense respect for all of you, and um, I'm grateful for this opportunity. So I just want to start with some general observations about the, the sort of project of this conversation. <clears throat> and I'll begin with a couple brief comments on the relation of historical theology to, to systematic and analytic theology. I think it's important that we keep in mind that these are distinct projects, both of which are very important in their own right, and of course with really important relations between them, but they are different projects. I think that good theology, at least of any sort of retrievalist varieties, is going to rely and rely heavily on good historical theology. In other words, we really, really need good historians to do their work well. Um, but 
the task of systematic and analytic theology isn't reducible to the historical project. Now, of course, happily, people can and do both projects, and they can put them together. Um, so it's not like the, these are hermetically sealed off or in any sense that we need to silo the, the disciplines. I'm very much against that. Um, we need, at least I'll say this as a, uh, I've done some work in both fields, and um, uh, but I'll speak as a as a theologian right now, not as a rather than as historian, and say we really need we being the theologians. We really need the good historical uh, theological scholarship. We rely upon it, but it's just not um, reducible to to the to that task or that discipline or that calling. And um, I think it's important to keep that in mind. Secondly, and this will be. I'm preaching to the choir for sure here, but I still think it's important to say is that there is a need in all of these discussions to have um, clarity on what we're talking about, at least as much as possible. For instance, the terms classical theism, which are featuring in our conversation, uh, terms like classical theism, social trinitarianism, theistic personalism, um, the, the very labels that maybe... Um, brought some of you to this conversation. Those labels themselves need, um, those terms themselves need uh, considerable work. And I'll say more than they've gotten. Um, a, there's a lot of, of people will make, who, who refer to this in the literature, will make sort of passing comment to some statements from Brian Davies, uh, his sort of characterizations about what quote-unquote classical theism is and what a quote-unquote theistic personalism is. And he, he knows, I mean, he says several pages after those pages that are quoted all the time, he actually says, these don't take this too seriously. These aren't like um, groups or, um, you know, he, he's like, these are character general characterizations, but people sometimes take them as definitions and then weaponize them and, and add phrases that to me seem kind of silly, like monopolytheism and stuff like that. And, and then start using these as ways to sort of set up hard, hard lines. The very language of classical theism needs a, a good bit of a good bit of further clarification. Uh, phrases like uh, terms like social Trinitarianism need a great deal more conceptual hygiene before they're going to be very helpful to us. And I, I'm, I've done a little bit of that, trying to do a little bit of that myself, and I'm willing to do some more, and I'm willing to do some more today. I'm just right now saying we need to do that in general. Uh, thirdly, we need to avoid reducing the so-called great tradition down to some single element of it or single strand of it. Um, it's important, of course, to keep in mind the continuity that does run throughout the, the mainstream Latin and even more broadly, just a Christian tradition. Absolutely. But sometimes what happens is this gets boiled down to whatever Thomas Aquinas said, or whatever Aquinas is said to have said by the preferred school of Thomism. Um, I just saw yesterday a in Credo magazine a, um, a statement saying that Thomas's view is Christian orthodoxy on Trinity. Well, I mean, that's an ambiguous claim if one is saying that, if one is meaning to say that it fits within the parameters of Christian orthodoxy, that's great. But if one is, to, is saying one has to agree with all of the particulars of his formulation of the doctrine to be orthodox, I'm sorry, um, 
you got to make an argument for that and you can't just say it and assume it. Um, so often, at least too often, the great tradition gets sort of narrowed down to a single strand and then sometimes that single strand gets oversimplified. And then sometimes we end up with these statements, these broad sweeping claims about quote unquote, the so-called classical definition of person versus what's sometimes called the modern notion. And the, so far as I can see things, the reality is there is no such thing as the classical definition of person in Trinity doctrine. And there certainly is no such thing as the modern notion. I mean, there are different competing accounts, um, both within the tradition and then in reaction to it. So <clears throat> those, those are areas that need, certainly are going to need work. Another thing that um, I want to say, and this goes back to my first claim about recognizing both the importance of, but the distinction between historical and constructive systematic or analytic theology. And this is, I don't think we should neglect advances in logic and metaphysics. Uh, some people might say there are no advances. Everything was settled in the 13th century. Um, and if so, then go for it. Make an argument for that. Um, that's fine. That's great. Those are good conversations. But let's not assume that. And um, and then with that, directly with that, and lastly for this section, let's not ignore challenges um, to the received Christian tradition or, or elements of it. Sometimes um, someone doing constructive sort of analytic theology will raise a worry or a concern or an objection. Maybe it's an objection that they think is interesting. Maybe it's one they think is actually fatal, right? They think it... it um, they think it's a deal breaker. And then the response they get is, well, if you only understood the great tradition, you would think that. And, you know, sometimes there there is misunderstanding and we need to sort that out. But that sort of response only goes so far and only does so much. And, it, um, and if that's all that can be said, or most of all that can be said, I, I take that to not be very helpful. And in, indeed, I can think of almost nothing less scholastic than the, re, than the sort of refusal to engage with serious objections, even those drawn from contemporary logic and metaphysics. I mean, that's just, I can, I can hardly think of anything more anti-scholastic, anti, certainly anti-Thomistic um, than that. Um, but sometimes it happens. Or similarly, things will get sort of swept aside with, well, your objections are all assuming univocity, so we're not going to pay attention to them. Well, sometimes they may, and sometimes they may not. And even where they may, we need to be shown why that's a bad thing. So these are um, some general sort of observations. Now, as I said, moving to the actual topic, um, as I said earlier, the label social Trinitarianism, in my view, is in pretty desperate need of conceptual hygiene project. And I've I've tried to do some of that myself. I'm willing to talk more about that. I'll probably leave that for now. We can circle back to it if there's interest in it. Um, but just let me just say at this point that on some accounts or characterizations or definitions of what quote unquote social Trinitarianism is, to get directly to the question that was posed before us by Jordan. I do think that some of these um, versions of social Trinitarianism are just inconsistent with the mainstream um, creedal confessional views. But 
there are other things that are sometimes called social Trinitarianism that I think are entirely consistent, or at least uh, have not yet been shown to be inconsistent. So it just it's going to depend on what we're talking about. Depending on the definition, uh, systemat- uh, social Trinitarianism either is or isn't uh, inconsistent with the tradition. And if that's vague, I'm leaving it there for right now as bait for further conversation. I hope we, I hope we return to this. By the way, I'll just say um, that's why one of the reasons why I am a fan of what other people in this group are doing. Um, Scott, for instance, is trying to take seriously both aspects of the tradition, the commitments to numerical sameness on the one hand, and the robust commitments as well in the tradition to recognizing mutual love and distinct agency within that tradition. So we have, excuse me, um, more to talk about with social Trinitarianism, more to talk about with understandings of person. And again, there is considerable variegation here within the Latin tradition. And um, we can talk more about that, but let me just sort of serve this up by saying that there are are really first-rate, in my view, first-rate medievalists who work on this, who see important distinctions between um, um, re- strictly relational and emanationist views of, of the production, those who see persons as strictly as the personal properties, which is close related to a, a, a commitment to a particular view of divine simplicity, as opposed to those who see the divine persons as something more of a quasi-constitutional um, view. <clears throat> we can hopefully return to that again later. With respect to divine simplicity in the tradition, again, I want to point out, of course, um, I want to first affirm what we all I take to be, you know, take to be obvious, that of course there's this deep, broad commitment within the Christian tradition to divine simplicity. It's all over the place, patristica, medieval, Latin, and Greek, it's everywhere. But there's also considerable variegation um, with respect to the formulations of it. And there's not just one thing that can be called the doctrine. Um, there's there's good literature that's come out fairly recently on this, and I think that's helpful in helping us move this forward. So, again, to the question that's before us that Jordan has posed, I do take it that some accounts of divine simplicity really do seem to be, and I think actually are, incompatible with Trinity doctrine. Sorry, but I think some of them are. But some accounts, other formulations of divine simplicity are not only compatible with, but also provide support to Christians who are Trinitarian. In other words, I think that not only can you fit them together, but there are really good reasons why theologians in the tradition have put them together. And they've been wrestling with these questions for centuries. I mean, Gregory of Nyssa has these debates with Eunomius, where both sides are assuming the doctrine of divine simplicity and then arguing about Trinity doctrine from there. Um, Bonaventure has this long extended question, this long discussion of uh, the relation of the doctrine of Trinity to the doctrine of divine simplicity. There are different formulations of this, different ways of putting it together. Some of them, I think, don't work, and some of them are really do. Again, that's just a, a vague tease. Um, hopefully, we can return to some of this later. So I do think, um, again, with respect to this part of the conversation, and in direct response to one of the questions Jordan has served up to us, is that contemporary theology should affirm a doctrine of divine simplicity and should do so without compromising a good doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, I do think that there are other factors in this as well. 
uh, in these conversations. I think the concerns about motor collapse are, are, are real and serious and should be taken uh, with due seriousness. But I think with respect to the question before us, Trinity and simplicity, short version, um, I think that they theologians today can, and I, I hope do, affirm simplicity doctrine without uh, compromising, much less surrendering the, the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. All right, that's, uh, I think I've hit my time, Jordan, so yeah, I will it's all right. uh, turn this so over. Thanks, Doc, yeah. thanks, Dr. McCall. Um, next up, I'll hand it over to Dr. Crisp. And if we go over a little bit in these initial statements, we'll just cut off a little bit in the negative statements if we have some space. So we've got some built-in space at the end, so I do want to give everybody who's listening live a chance. So we'll, we'll do our best. But Dr. Crisp, I'll let you go ahead and uh, jump in. Thank you, Jordan, uh, and thank you for the invite to be here with uh, such terrific uh, guests um, uh, whose work I'm in, in admiration of as well as uh, Tom. And thank you to Tom for some really helpful setting up things that, that means there are some things that I can uh, skip in what I'm about to say about uh, historical systematic and analytic theology and, and theistic personalism and stuff like that. Um, in my work, uh, which is sort of... Uh, I suppose, a species of analytic theology on the, on the more systematic theology side of things. Um, I'm interested in trying to give a constructive account of the doctrine of God, but one I hope that is responsibly engaged with the great tradition. Um, I have to say, though, that I do think that whilst theological retrieval is something that's very important, in other words, the reaching back to the ideas and arguments and thoughts of theologians of the past and bring them into uh, the contemporary discussion in order to um, have them as sort of interlocutors to help us develop our own thinking. Although I think that kind of theological retrieval is, is important and has uh, been made um, a sort of plank of much contemporary systematic theology, I'm not sure that it's sufficient for the theological task because I think that theology always has to be um, constructive uh, in its its own way and we have to in in important respects not simply be looking back to the past and being informed by the great tradition but we also need to restate doctrine in a way that makes sense in the contemporary context and that's just not going to be the same as it was 150 years ago or, or 500 years ago or a thousand years ago so i do think there's an interesting tension in doing this kind of work and thinking about the doctrine of god because you're in a sense, looking over your shoulder and looking back at a great tradition and a great cloud of witnesses that have gone before you. But at the same time, you're looking forward to an audience that is dealing with contemporary issues and problems and uh, aware of the fact that those contemporary issues and problems are different from, in many ways, different from the ways in, in which they've been articulated historically. And so I think um, responsible theologians are, are, in a way, like a, a theological two-headed Janus looking backwards and looking forwards, but hopefully in a way that, that um, fructifies and um, uh, helps the church and helps uh, people understand these things to flourish rather than to confuse them or, or make matters muddier. So that's, that's a kind of plea for theological construction. Um, and in that regard, I think um, I would want to say that my own view um, looks backwards and seeks to retrieve but does also seek to um, do something constructive. And the constructive bit is this, that rather than simply um, trying to repristinate some voice from the past, as sometimes seems to happen um, in these days, 
Um, I think there's important ways in which we need to um, articulate our views with some care. Um, so one important factor in the way that I approach these matters is the use of models, theological models. Now, a model here I'm thinking of as a kind of simplified description of more complex data. So we might think of a, a model of an atom in a physics textbook in high school as a model uh, of something that uh, is really much more complicated than the simple um, diagram in the textbook. But what the textbook gives us is some uh, conceptual grip on something that's much more complicated than the, the simple picture is able to show us. So it's a simplified description of more complex data. It seems to me that much Christian doctrine is engaged in providing us with models by means of which we can understand something of the mystery of God. Um, and that mystery is understood according to divine revelation, according to the great tradition that we've already been talking about, and um, according to our ability to grasp these things through reason. Um, but these things are in a kind of complex interplay, it seems to me, and especially when, we, when it comes to something as, as difficult and deep as thinking about God and the divine nature. Um, really, whenever we think about these things, we are... Uh, dipping our toe into a vast ocean of truth uh, that we can't possibly plumb. And as soon as we do put our toe in the water, we are quickly aware of the fact that there are all sorts of currents and eddies beneath uh, the surface that we need to be careful of in um, making certain sorts of judgments and decisions as we go about thinking about our doctrine of God. Because, of course, there's any number of ways of thinking about the doctrine of God, and that's just in the Christian tradition that Tom was talking about, all the way through to um, alternative concepts of God that are being uh, touted these days from process theism through to things like um, pantheism um, and uh, panpsychism, things like that. We're really interested in the classical theistic view, and it seems to me one important consideration here is understanding that in dealing with classical theism, we are dealing with um, a divine mystery. Um, God is inherently mysterious and beyond our ken, but is revealed to us in um, Scripture and in Christ. And to some extent, um, the great Christian tradition as well brings us important resources, resources to do with reflection, uh, theological reflection upon this deposit of divine revelation, which has significantly augmented and shaped the way we think about God. So, for example, in the, in the question of the Trinity, um, many people argue that you can find a doctrine of the Trinity implicit in the New Testament documents, but it's made explicit and refined through the first three cent four centuries of the life of the church until we get the great Nicene-Constantinopolitan symbol, which um, gives us a kind of outline of the doctrine of the Trinity, one, uh, one substance and three persons. But that really doesn't come into theological parlance for some centuries after the close of the New Testament canon. So there, there when we're dealing with something as central as that, we've got this complex interplay between what can be established on the basis of what is thought to be revealed and what can be established on the basis of subsequent reflection by the church, by church leaders uh, in, in the tradition and the reason, the sanctified reason, hopefully, that they bring to bear on these things. Now, in the traditional doctrine of God that um, one finds discussed in the first uh, few centuries of the life of the church, there is this tension between two poles, between 
simplicity and triunity between a kind of sense of plurality in God and a sense of unity in God. And much depends on the emphasis that we place on one or other of those poles as to what, what it is that we end up saying about the doctrine of God. So, for example, if you privilege the um, unity of God and emphasize divine simplicity, then your doctrine of triunity is going to have to be correspondingly thin in order for it to be commensurate with your understanding, the thick understanding of divine simplicity, and conversely. Um, and I think that is an important consideration when it comes to thinking about um, the two poles of the doctrine of God, which of those... Um, which of those we hey quick timeout for you guys who are listening just to let you know there was some tech difficulties at this very moment for oliver and for scott so we decided at that moment since this is totally live to go ahead and switch over to zoom instead of continuing on riverside since we were having tech difficulties there uh, because we wanted to preserve the content for everybody involved all the people who are listening live watching live and for for you listeners who are going to listen after the fact we want to make sure to get as much content in here as we could so we switched over to zoom so that did disrupt oliver's flow of thought a little bit but I think you won't really notice much. So thanks for everybody who watched live for hanging in there. But for now on, we know exactly how to solve this issue going forward. So thanks for listening. Now, back to Oliver. Seriously, in the way that I think about these things, um, since uh, without some kind of notion of um, God revealing himself in Scripture, we'd have very little to go on when it comes to thinking about the divine nature. But of course, it seems to me that's also augmented in important respects by what we find in the goat tradition. I gave the example of the doctrine of the Trinity, which seems to me to um, be a doctrine that we really have as a whole, only fairly late in the tradition. Um, and at, at best, perhaps at most, we have in sort of embryonic form or aspects of, of it in embryonic form, early tradition and in scripture. And so to, to get the doctrine of the Trinity, we need to, to make some complex metaphysical deci decisions and think carefully in the kind of theological judgments that we uh, apply um, using our reason. Um, so we've got these two poles, Trinity and, uh, and the unity of God, and much depends on what we emphasize here as to the kind of doctrine of God that we come up with. Um, what I want to suggest is that we treat the way we articulate these uh, accounts of God as models, simplified descriptions of more complex data. We might think of it like this. There's the mystery of, the, of, of God, of the divine nature, <coughs> which is beyond us. And we're standing on something like a, a precipice. Uh, and beyond us is, the, is this kind of great chasm that we can't, uh, we can't um, cross. Um, and um, which, as it were, conveys to us the, the divine presence in some sense. We can go up to the edge of the chasm uh, where there's a kind of uh, railing uh, and hopefully not fall into the chasm, um, but we can't cross into the chasm. We can't um, penetrate the chasm. We can't see uh, what there is beyond that, except and unless that which is beyond reveals itself to us. And that, it seems to me, is what we have in the doctrine of God as it's usually understood in, in a Christian tradition. But this sort of view pre, uh, presupposes both a fairly robust account of apophaticism, the idea that there, um, we have to uh, tolerate a sense in which um, mystery uh, is going to be an important consideration in our account of God, 
uh, and that we're only going to be able to understand certain things about God. It is a faith-seeking understanding program, but it is um, it is a it is about faith in the mystery of the Trinity. But it's also, I hope, a, re- a program of kind of theological realism. In other words, um, those who want to adopt this sort of view do really think there's a truth of the matter that's mind-independent, at least creaturely mind-independent, um, and do think that there's there's aspects of that um, reality that we can access and understand to some extent. So although I'm, uh, I'm a sympathetic to a certain level of apophatism, uh, I don't want to, to go so high octane in my apophatism that you end up being utterly mystified about God and really want, are able to say very little about the divine nature. Uh, and I do want to hang on to some kind of um, theological realism. Um, and I do think there are certain things that we can say about God cataphatically, as it were, positively like God is triune, um, or that um, uh, the second person of the Trinity is incarnate in Jesus of Nazareth. Those are pretty fundamental theological claims in the Christian tradition that bear on what we say about the divine nature. So um, what I think when it comes to drilling down to saying something more specific about models of God is um, that we are really engaged in providing what we might think of as proxies to the truth of the matter, an approximate account of who God is, that because God is mysterious, it's not going to give us the whole truth of the matter, but um, is um, getting somewhere near the truth of the matter, hopefully uh, as near as we can to the truth of the matter. Um, but it may well be that the accounts that we end up with are not the truth, you know, full stop, as it were, but only proxies to the truth. And that certainly seems true to me of models of the Trinity, of which there are many. Um, Tom already mentioned social Trinitarianism as one sort of family of models. And divine simplicity, uh, which is also something that admits of a multitude of different ways of thinking. Uh, And there have been significant debates, both historically and in the recent literature, about trying to understand the doctrine of divine simplicity. It may be that we should adopt a kind of chastened account of theism rather than going for the kind of full-blown classical theism, although that's not a single bit of family views, but rather than going for a full-blown classical theism, maybe we should um, seek to articulate models that commit us to less, but therefore may be more defensible in some respects. Um, So, for example, on the doctrine of advanced simplicity, perhaps we don't want to go the whole hog and say, God is without any composition whatsoever. Because even if that's true, it's difficult to defend. Perhaps what we want to say is um, something that is more proximate, something like God is a um, simple substance, a bit like uh, a subatomic particle might be a simple substance, or a soul might be a simple substance. In other words, something that's uh, metaphysically primitive, that can't be chopped up into smaller parts, though it has distinct states and properties and things like that. And maybe we want to say, here's a model for thinking about divine simplicity. It's not necessarily the sober truth of the matter. It may well be that the high octane account of divine simplicity is in fact the truth of the matter. But... Oops. Oliver, I just muted you by accident. I apologize. Oh, I can't. Can I not unmute you, man? Okay, here. Ask to unmute. Can I? Let's see here. Okay. Unmute. There we go. Sorry. Yeah. 
So um, the, su the suggestion is that uh, a model of simplicity which commits us to less might be able to do what we needed to do theologically, uh, be defensible and may commit us to fewer, more controversial claims, even if it's only a proxy to the truth of the matter. And the same, it seems to me, might be true of the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, and there, I'm, uh, I'm attracted to a kind of mysterious account of the doctrine of the Trinity that rather than simply, and rather than trying to stipulate exactly what we mean by person and nature and how these things uh, interrelate, um, it, it instead um, seeks to adumbrate an account of, of the Trinity, which um, bears in mind the fact that Really, there's very little that we can know about the divine nature apart from what we have articulated for us um, in the great tradition in the Nicene Constantinopolitan symbol. Um, so these two ways of thinking about the two poles of God on simplicity and on Trinity are proxies. They give us a more chastened account of theism. It may well be that that chastened account of theism is a version of classical theism. And it may well be that it's consistent with uh, classical theism, all things considered, if the view that I'm espousing is simply a, a stand-in for the truth of the matter, and the proxy may be a, a strictly speaking false, but approximate account of something which is true, after all. Um, and it may well be that either this account is, is sufficient for, the, for our theological purposes, um, and or that it also points to something about the divine nature, which perhaps a fuller, more complete uh, account of the divine nature would give us, um, which we may not be either able to articulate or in possession of at this, at this point in time. I think also this account of the divine nature gives us much of what we need in, in the traditional kind of um, uh, the divine uh, predicates or attributes of God, the omni-properties, God's eternity, mutability, aseity, ultimacy, things like that. But it's not going to get us the sort of view that is beloved of Thomists, namely that God is a simple, pure act. That is a cost to the model if you are a, a sort of hardcore classical theist. Uh, but as I say, that may be a cost worth bearing since it is, after all, only a model. Okay, I think I'll stop there. This is, uh, this is a part of, a, I, maybe I'll just say as a final thought, this is part of an ongoing sort of project as I try to think through these things. Uh, and I'm aware of the fact that uh, a lot of the topics that uh, we're talking about today are the subject of uh, a vociferous debate in the recent literature. Indeed, some of my colleagues here have contributed and are contributing to this debate. So I'll be interested to see what others have to say about it. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, Dr. Crisp. And thanks again, everybody who's joining. Just a reminder, make sure to mute yourself if you're not one of the participants. Uh, I apologize for the, the switch over here. Next time I do this, I will be more prepared. Um, I am not a tech nerd, so I'm doing my best. So thank you for bearing with us. Now, um, next is a, a good Thomist in Dr. Tim Paul. So I will let you go ahead and start um, your section. Uh, Tim, let me make sure that you, you're unmuted. I guess you can control yourself, I think. So, Tim, are you are you good? I'm all set to go. Yep. Okay. I'm going to remove, I'm going to put the spotlight on you. Um, I don't know if it shows for everybody else, but I think it might spotlight for everyone. Okay, there we go. All right. Go okay. go ahead and lead off. <laughs> that wasn't me. That was somebody else leading off for me. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks, Tim. All right, I'll let you go. <laughs> Thank you. Uh 
Oh, okay. So thank you very much for having me here. I think Jordan, you're doing a great job. You had, you got dealt a tricky hand there and I think you did it well. So thanks for moving us over here. I'm happy to be here. I'm uh, happy to be here with uh, these three guys who my count as dear friends and happy to talk about the Trinity and divine simplicity with you guys. So here goes. Uh, I think the first thing we should do is get a handle on what our terms mean. And to do that, we should consider our dialectical position. When asking about the consistency of divine simplicity and the Trinity, we are entering into an explicitly Christian framework. Now, for a theory of simplicity to fit within that framework, it must be consistent with the essential elements of that framework. Now, no doubt, someone could affirm that simplicity requires uh, a helicopter. Someone could affirm that simplicity requires uh, being in every way, no matter what, unable to number more than one, either in part or an attribute or in feature or in any way at all, period, end of story. Now that's a notion of simplicity that one might have. And I think both the Christian and the non-Christian alike should agree that such a notion sits poorly with traditional Christianity. Because of that, we shouldn't fault a Christian for when seeing that poor fit, preferring some other notion of simplicity. So I think that the Christian is well within her rights to, to screen out notions of simplicity that immediately contradict other elements of her Christian faith in the hopes of finding a more congruent notion. One such element of her faith is the belief in the incarnation, that God became man, taking on a complete human nature. Now, here's an interesting thought, seated squarely in the Christian intellectual tradition, from John of Damascus through Aquinas, and down to us through many others in their wake. The thought is this, that the second person of the Trinity, when incarnate, remained simple. He was, in fact, both simple and complex. But how can this be? It's easy to see how he's complex. I mean, he's got two hands and two feet. He's got a body and a soul. If you and I each count as complex in virtue of our hands and our feet and our bodies and our souls, all being parts of us, yet distinct from one another, he must have counted as complex for the very same reasons. If my having these two hands is sufficient for me to fulfill the ontological conditions for satisfying the predicate complex, then it seems like his having two hands should be sufficient too. How could he be simple though during the incarnation? Well, here's a hypothesis. Once we find satisfaction conditions that allow the word to be simple while incarnate, we will have also found satisfaction conditions for God's being simple and yet triune. That's what I think. Let's see how it works. So how to understand simplicity such that it's consistent with the incarnation, as Damascene and Aquinas and countless others understood it? I've argued in multiple places in the last eight or so years, we should understand the satisfaction conditions, not the meanings, but the ontological conditions under which the terms are satisfied, as including a has a nature such that clause in them. And let me spell that out. Here's what I mean. By distinguishing between satisfaction conditions and meanings, I intend to differentiate what we mean by a term, you know, like how we define, say, the word courage, what we mean by it on the one hand, from the way the world has to be for the predicate courage 
to be satisfied by something. So, for example, maybe Socrates has to instantiate a universal courage itself in order for the predicate courage to be true of him. Or maybe he has to have a unique inhering accident of courage. Now, you and I might disagree on the ontology of properties. You might be a Platonist and I am a Thomist. And yet we can agree on the meaning of the word courage. We're not disagreeing there on whether or not Socrates is courageous is true. We're disagreeing about what the world looks like behind the veil of the appearances, what the metaphysical apparatus looks like to make true the proposition, Socrates is courageous. What's the world got to be like? Now, with that distinction between the meaning of the term and the ontological conditions for satisfying a term in mind, one could hold that to be simple requires, as its ontological satisfaction conditions, not the having of no parts, since Christ does have parts, but being simple requires having a nature that has no parts. And similarly, being complex requires having a nature that has some parts. And Christ fulfills both those conditions. So Christ is both simple and complex. The initial apparent contradiction, how can something be both simple and complex, is resolved by reconceiving the ontological satisfaction conditions for the relevant predicates. Now, take that understanding of those satisfaction conditions for the predicate simple that I just discussed in the incarnation, and let's pull them over to the Trinity and see what we can see. Suppose for the sake of argument that the doctrine of the Trinity is true. There are three divine persons. They're each really distinct from one another, each having the one divine nature. Well, here's a question we can ask. Are the divine persons simple? Well, they each have a nature, the one and only divine nature, and that nature has no parts. So they fulfill the ontological conditions for satisfying the predicate simple. It seems to me that divine simplicity and the Trinity, understood in this way, are compatible. Or at very least, it seems to me that we've demotivated the initial alleged contradiction in affirming both simplicity and the Trinity. Now, I've got a little bit more I was going to say about the meaning of the word God, and I'm happy to say it, or I'm happy to just put it off um, and continue on with Scott so we have a bit more time later for discussion. Either way, yeah, Jordan, I'd say we go ahead and put it off just since we've already lost some time, um, and I want to be respectful of you guys. So, Scott, uh, Dr. Williams, why don't you go ahead and finish this off? I'll go ahead and put you as the spotlight person uh, now. And once I get that right. set up, um, let's see here. More spotlight. Boom. All right. It's all you. All right. Thank you, Jordan, for having me. I'm, it's really great to be here, um, especially with these esteemed colleagues talking about the Trinity and simplicity. Um, um, so I'll just say, I got into thinking about the Trinity because when I became a Christian, I learned that what makes Christianity different from a lot of other religions is the Trinity and the incarnation. And so because of uh, my Christianity, I became very, very interested in the Trinity. I first learned about it in some technical way in C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity when I was a high schooler. I thought it was, it just raised a bunch of questions for me. Uh, and that kind of planted a seed. And then in often graduate school, um, I decided to work on Henry of Ghent on the Trinity, who's a scholastic theologian. 
And so a lot of my training has been in scholastic theology. And after I finished the PhD, I started to participate in more analytical kinds of conversations. Some people label me an analytic theologian, though I see myself more as a historian of scholastic theology and ancient theology. I'm just really interested in um, as I think Oliver mentioned, like we have to speak to the contemporary audience and we need to get updated on new arguments, new issues, and we must address them if we're interested in the truth rather than being ostriches and just hiding our heads in the past. So we have to deal with important contemporary uh, issues and take them seriously. And so that's what I've been trying to do um, over the last 10 years or so. Um, okay, so one of the things that I discovered in studying the great tradition is that sometimes there are different theologies of the Trinity. Sometimes uh, theologians, scholastic theologians, think the right thing to say is very different. Um, so I discovered this early on when I was comparing the theology of um, Aquinas, Henry of Ghent, and then Scotus. Uh, I found Henry of Ghent saying something like the divine persons um, love that they love each other. And I didn't find such a thing in um, Scotus and Aquinas. I mean, we can get into the details of this. And so that motivated Henry of Ghent to say and develop a model of the Trinity that was different than uh, Aquinas. Um, and Scotus tried to adopt a lot of what Henry said, but get rid of the more what you might think of as what we might call social part or social aspect in the model of the Trinity. So I became aware of that. And then I became aware that in reading contemporary analytical literature, that people, depending on their religious tradition, depending on their metaphysical commitments, they, and depending if they have a love affair with any specific authors from the past, are gonna be motivated to construct or defend a model of the Trinity um, in that kind of way. And they may have, so in other words, they have different explananda. Um, so, um, so sometimes theologians will talk past each other um, because they have different things that they think it is they're trying to explain, even though they're all identified as Christian. So one of the things that I've tried to do is to think about what are some common criteria that at least a lot of Christians could use to help them to have a conversation about the Trinity. And so for me, uh, uh, and the tradition that I'm a part of, like the ecumenical councils is a significant feature of the theology. And then I recognize that this is also true, of course, in Eastern Orthodox world, uh, Roman Catholic world, and some mainline Protestant traditions. And so what I wanted to discover was, what do the conciliar councils say about the Trinity? Not that in my view, they are uh, infallible or give us all the metaphysical fine-grained detail that you might desire today, but they can provide you guidance for what kinds of things you should consider and what kinds of things you might avoid in order to save the gospel of Jesus Christ from incoherence. Um, and so I started looking, and so I found something that, um, once I started looking at secondary literature, wasn't in any secondary literature, namely that in the Sixth Ecumenical Council of Constantinople in 680, there is a discussion of the Trinity um, in relationship to the Incarnation and so I spent a summer reading through the acts of that council uh, in the uh, Greek and the Latin and discovered really interesting things about the Trinity that is not in any secondary literature that I have been able to discern. And so this fall, I have an article coming out in the journal Analytic Theology 
that is about that and giving it historical context for, to help people to see what, what ontological commitments um, Constantinople III has regarding the Trinity. Um, and so I've tried to use statements from that council to uh, in, help me in developing a model of the Trinity in relationship to contemporary um, discussions. And so, um, so I'll come back to Constantinople III in a minute. So one of the things that's also really significant is one's notion of what a person is. Uh, so I also have been investigating the history of concepts of personhood, and I've discovered a variety of concepts put forward by Christian theologians, both in the Trinitarian context and in the context of the incarnation. And so what I've come to discover is that sometimes when somebody defends, articulates the model of the Trinity, that they're working with a concept of person and that concept of person does certain work for that person or sends them in a certain direction in their ontological account of the Trinity. Um, and so, um, so some social models are going to assume some kind of account of person that leads them to defend a social model. And so, um, can I share my screen or not? No, I can't, okay. Um, and so some social models and a Unitarian model make the same ontological mistake from the point of view of Constantinople III. Namely, they accept the following equation. The number of divine persons correlates to the number of sets of divine powers and acts, and the number of sets of divine powers and acts correlates to the number of divine persons. So in a slogan, the mistake is to assume that the number of persons is equal to the number of the sets of powers and acts. So given this assumption, some, but not all, social models will say, well, if there are three divine persons, then there's gotta be three sets of divine powers and three sets of divine acts. So the father thinks one thing, he has his own act of thinking of something, the son has his own act of thinking of something, and likewise the spirit, and given that they are divine, some social Trinitarians are going to say, well, they always agree on everything, even though they have their own numerically distinct um, acts of thought. Um, and one of the things that also motivates this way of thinking is the phenomenon of what philosophers call day say knowledge, knowledge of oneself. So the argument's gonna be something like, if, if a divine person is all knowing, they certainly know which divine person they are. The father knows that he's the father. The son knows that he's the son and the spirit knows that um, they're the Holy Spirit. Um, you think that they know that. And then the social, some social models are going to say, well, if only the father can know that he's the father, then the father must have one act of thought, at least that one that is not shared with the son and not shared with the spirit. And then they might say, well, then that means they have their own powers that they use. And so we have, three sets of divine powers, intellectual powers and willpowers, because that seems to be the best account or best explanation for, for something that seems obviously true, namely that the father knows that he's the father and the son knows that he's the son. Um, and so that has been a, an argument that has um, been used to defend some social models of the Trinity. Now, a Unitarian model of the Trinity, uh, shoot, over time, a Unitarian model of the Trinity is gonna say, well, um, if there's just one set of divine powers and acts, and there's just one divine person. And so the divine nature just is the father, right? So you see this sort of view with Dale Tuggy and his account of personhood focuses on self. So he thinks that there's just one divine self 
Um, so there's just one divine nature and that's the father and everybody else is derivative in some kind of way. Um, but Constantinople three rules out this ontological claim that the number of persons is equal to the number of powers and acts. Um, um, and so they're going to say that you count the number of powers and acts according to the number of natures, not according to the number of persons. Um, and so actually, let me just read this passage and maybe this will be my concluding comment from Constantinople III. So this is from Pope St. Agatha's letter to the council, which is endorsed by the council. So most people recognize that this council deals with the question about whether Christ has two wills. Um, but the thing that I discovered is that Trinitarian theology is embedded in this discussion. So here's an argument um, Consequently, therefore, according to the rule of the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church of Christ, she also confesses and preaches that there are in Christ two natural wills and two natural operations. For if anybody should mean a personal will, when in the Holy Trinity there are said to be three persons, it would be necessary that there should be asserted three personal wills and three personal operations, which is absurd and truly profane. Since, as the truth of the Christian faith holds, the will is natural where the one nature of the holy and inseparable trinity is spoken of. It must be consistently understood that there is one natural will and one natural operation. So um, if, if we're analytic minded, you might want to put this into an argument uh, structure. And so I put this into a modus tollens argument. Premise one. If we should apprehend the number of wills and operations according to the number of hypotheses, then we would apprehend three wills and three operations in the case of the Trinity. But it is absurd to apprehend three wills and three uh, personal operations in the Trinity right, on the assumption that we apprehend the number of wills and operations according to the number of natures. Therefore, we should not apprehend the number of wills and operations according to the number of hypostases. And so this is, so far as I'm aware, if you're counting this, the first seven ecumenical councils, uh, what Constantinople III says about the Trinity is the most detailed uh, account of the Trinity you can find in any of the first seven ecumenical councils. And so far as I know, <laughs> I discovered it last summer. Um, it's not discussed in any of the secondary literature. So we can talk about that in the responses. There's a lot more to say about that. So I'll end there. Awesome. Well, thanks, Scott. So we've got, like 52 minutes left so i imagine and i think tim oliver tom scott you guys would be good with i'll make sure each of you get time to to interact with each other but i think maybe we just pivot to you four chat and talk about what you've heard now or ask some questions about the other person's view um but i think we'll just pivot to that and spend 30 minutes on that so what i'll do is you four unmute yourselves. I'm going to spotlight each of you because I think I can do that. So if I hit more and I hit at, yes, I can. Okay, so let me do that. So you can see everybody. More, add, and then Tim, which what, what's the vote? Who has the better beard, Tim or Oliver? <laughs> All right, cool. So we've got you four here. So I will, Tom, I don't know if you want to start since you sort of kicked us off here. Uh, so you've had the most time to kind of soak up uh, what everybody else has said, and maybe you just kick us off with um, 
I don't know, a question or a comment or something like that. No, Tom, you're, you're muted. Yeah, thanks. So um, I'll start with just a historical question um, just to get it going. And that's to, to Scott. Uh, I, I think his work's really interesting. And I, um, I'm a big fan of, of this getting a full hearing. Um, the, the language of, um, let me think how to put this. Uh, well, let me put the historical question. And, and then if we get to it, I have a conceptual question. So a historical question is about the um, divine acts and the, the, well, the, the letter from Pope Agathos. So um, you, you quoted that and then you immediately followed that with the statement that this, this statement is the fullest one. This considered statement is the fullest one we have in Trinity doctrine. Could you I mean, say other, other, other texts in the council get more details too. Yeah. yeah. Um, but um, the, the, clear, the, the sharp clarification you gave was from, from the, the letter. Uh, can you explain anything further about the relation of the letter to the actual um, dictates of the, of the, of the council? Oh, sure. I so, mean, I mean, it, yeah. I mean, in one way. Yeah. All right. Just go ahead. Yeah. So the, the emperor uh, Constantine, I think the fourth called the council trying to figure out this dispute between the Neophysites and the lovers of Chalcedon. Uh, and, and so you call the council. And so a year before the council, the Pope in Rome, who was the first Greek Pope, um, Agatha was a Greek Pope. Um, uh, he convened a synod in 679 with 125 bishops. And two thirds of those bishops were also Greek bishops. They had Greek names, not Latin names. And so they had a council, they wrote out a document. And so the Pope Agatha wrote a letter with a bunch of quotations from various um, the greatest hits and the lesser known hits and to defend their view, as well as this letter from the Senate, they send that to the council. And I think it's the fourth act or the fourth session of the council. Both of these letters are read aloud and then they are all endorsed by the council. Um, they're, they're accepted um, by the council. So it's can similar I, to some previous councils. Which yeah. tend, tend can to, I follow up with that? Yeah. And I don't want to just put you on spot. Anyone else can jump in too. But with that, um, again, just follow up with the historical part and then I'm going to add a conceptual question to that. So um, the historical part, um, the letter itself is not part of the authoritative statement though, correct? Um, I mean, it's, it's difficult, right? Because it's, it's, it's a big deal. Yeah. So, um, but it's, it's actually, I mean, I the, don't know. The creed that's put forward, is that what you're asking about? Yes. Like, I mean, the letter is not part of the creed per se, right? It's uh, an accompanying piece. Yeah. I mean, it's endorsed by the council. Yeah. Um, and it's used in defense of the creed that is published. Yeah. Um, and other evidence I gave was that the, the emperor, after the council, immediately after the council entered, he, he published a big edict. And in that edict, he begins with Trinitarian theology. And he more or less regurgitates everything that is said um, in those letters from Agatha. So the yeah. conceptual questions to follow up, uh, one of them is just to clarify, when we're talking about these divine actions, we're talking about divine actions out extra, correct? It doesn't say that. Um, it doesn't tell you ad extra or ad intra. Okay. It just says the 
the willpower is numerically one and the divine persons and the oper the operations are also numerically one. So it doesn't give you a distinction between add extra and add interest. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Okay. No, that's helpful. Um, so if it doesn't mean, if it means add intra as well, what becomes of the venerable doctrines of generation of procession? I mean, it, I mean, Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah. on, on so, a pretty pretty basic account of this, and I mm -hmm. I don't think idiosyncratic at all, but pretty widely understood is uh, the whole point of saying the I mean, and the, you know the medieval discussions of this. Uh, it's the father who generates the son, mm -hmm. not the son who generates the son. Yeah. So the council, I mean, the council itself doesn't uh, give us a theory of the personal properties, namely whether that their relations and what kind of relation they are. Um, it doesn't call them actions. Um, so you might think that what distinguishes persons are relations and those relations are not actions. Um, but there's the medievals go into more fine-grained detail about kinds of relations and some relations might be actions or productions. Um, so it's not going to give us that kind of fine-grained detail. The council itself doesn't, um, but it gives you guidance about numbers and counting because uh, previous analytic theologians in the late 20th century try to interpret the Nicene Creed and will interpret it in a way where you get the father has numerically distinct powers from the son, um, but Constantinople three rules that out. Um, so if the, if the, yeah, so the idea is that the, if the councils have authority for you or at least guidance for you, then you need to con be confronted by this. Sure. And no, somehow deal with it. And that's what I've been trying to do. Yeah. Good. Cool. Can you say more about the argument um, as to why the day say knowledge um, doesn't go through? I mean, your your modus tollen said, you know, um, the, the minor premise says, of course, that's absurd, but um, yeah. why, why, is that on? Is there more explanation in the um, from Pope Agatha? Oh, okay. So the the Sixth Council doesn't talk about de se knowledge, um, but I was saying that for contemporary people, what motivates some sort of social model is de se knowledge. So that you have self knowledge, and so you need some kind of account of that. And so now you're confronted with a situation where you've got this council um, that seems to say or it seems to not fit well with the idea of they say knowledge. And so one right you could go is, all right, cool. There is no they say knowledge in the Trinity. It's not very interesting. <laughs> you might think that, or you might think, no, no, they say knowledge is an important um, fact. Um, and so you might try to give an account of that. Um, so you're, just to be clear on your claim, your claim is not that the council explicitly rules it out. It's that it contains things that, um, either implicitly lead us to reject base, any yes. concerns about day say knowledge. Okay. Yeah. But it's not right. explicit. That's right. It doesn't okay. give you day say knowledge and not that. It doesn't talk about it. So okay. um, it does talk about day say knowledge in the case of the incarnation, right? Um, because Jesus knows that he's got a human nature um, that's different than the father's. And there, I, in my article, there's, there's uh, there are arguments to this effect. Um, where the council talks about uh, Jesus as I statements. Yeah. Tim probably knows a lot more about that stuff. Mm -hmm.
So, uh, Scott, if I, um, sorry, Jordan, is there, if I jump in or, or or not? Yeah, go for it. That's yeah, that's the whole point. This, so you guys just this, chat. Okay, thanks. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I was interested in what each of the three of you had to say for different reasons, but I mean, since Scott's um, just been talking. It, I mean, it's interesting to me that it looks like what you're saying is that the, the discussion about diathelitism effectively sort of puts a kind of pressure on what we think about um, carving up persons and natures in the, in the Trinity, right? The kind of idea being that, um, you know, wills are reserved to, to, um, uh, to natures, not persons being power. So Christ can have a human will and a divine will that are distinct, hence diothelitism, two willsism. Um, and that this, therefore, um, has important implications um, in the materials that you've been looking at in particular for how we think about the divine persons of the Trinity as well. That's the novelty, right? Yes, that's right. Um, and there's, um, uh, Johannes I mean, Sarkuber published a book this past, or yeah, right. Ago, right? And he details a lot of the prehistory, but he doesn't talk about the Sixth Council. So I take what I suppose, I, I know you don't want to go into great details about your current discussion with someone like um, William Hasker, but I suppose someone like Hasker's just going to, uh, could simply just say, well, so much the worse for the council. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, I'm, yes, you can do that. Um, I mean, they have other motivations to, right, you might think of, um, there's one ultimate source for all contingent beings. You want to have a count of the Trinity that's somehow consistent with some version of ancient Judaism. Um, and so that those kinds of considerations might tempt you to want to give the Sixth Council a, a shot, see what you can do with it, um, yeah. rather than give up on it um, early. Yeah, I guess the concern I have is that it's not clear to me you have a doctrine of Trinity without conciliar theology. Um, and so that's a pretty significant push, you know, move to make. I suppose you could simply say, well, look, there are various options on the doctrine of the Trinity on offer, there are various uh, accounts and you pay money and you take your choice. And if the, if the, with the account that I prefer um, on balance has this particular metaphysical cost that, it, that it's inconsistent with one of the conciliar documents, that's a problem, but it's not necessarily uh, a knockdown drag out reason to reject the view if the view has other independent reasons for thinking that we should take it seriously. You know, for example, it's a better account of persons or something like that, right? So if I can follow up, Scott, um, and we, I want us to move on, but I'm, I'm really fascinated in this part of the conversation. Um, you refer to your own view, um, which is working, trying to be consistent with these historical statements, correct? Um, right. But you also refer to your own view as a sort of, or you have referred to as a Latin social view or a conciliar social view. Can you say what's social about your, your account? There is day say knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> Um, the father knows he's the father and he knows he's not the son. Yep. Um, I think that in some ways that might be the difference between a social and a non-social view. It may not be. My suspicion is that um, whatever a non-social view is, that they haven't fully confronted the ontology of Dese knowledge. Um, or, yeah. Um, or you can try to go um, some kind of... Um, Sabellianism, like Brian Laftel does, where he kind of speaks of God as 
what I refer to as one Boethian person who's three Lockean persons. Yeah, right. right. Um, no, and right. what's great in my research, I'm uh, writing a book on Henry of Ghent, and he has this sentence where he says something like, you may be tempted to think the divine nature is a person because it's a singular thing, but wait, it doesn't have the determination of personhood because it doesn't have the incommunicable personal property itself. Only the persons have those. Um, so I suspect if, if Henry were here, he'd say Brian has taken the bait. Um, um, yeah. Speaking of Trinity and simplicity, that's yeah. probably going to be one view that's really hard to square with simplicity, despite the fact that he labels his view a Latin social trinity. Yeah. Partly, partly because he talks about um, three different temporal parts of God. So if you've got temporal parts, you've got parts. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So that we'll leave um, that aside. Yeah. I had a question. Can I raise it to it's to Oliver? Uh, and it's <laughs> we're gonna have a beard off here. <laughs> I'd like to know um, you you talked at some points about the views, the doctrines being not true, strictly speaking, false, but close. To I true. could see you sort of as soon as I said that I could see you just like oh will <laughs> moving Trump, furiously Trump, across, Trump. across the, <laughs> yeah. the page at that point. Got lots of notes over here. Uh, <laughs> And so I wonder, I wonder uh, two things. You also said earlier uh, at the very beginning of your talk, you said that we have to speak to the current problems and situations that we find ourselves in as well. We have to re represent the doctrine in the contemporary mode. And I wonder for for both those things, for one, the, the chastisement, which leaves us with maybe less than we thought we had and the, the speaking in the contemporary mode there's got to be some sort of line where you can say, ah, you tried to speak in the contemporary mode, but you goofed up. That's not really what they meant, even with the new words. Or it's got to be a line where you say, I've been chastised, sure, but I still have to think that Christ was a true man. Like whatever else you chastise and take away from me, true manhood shouldn't be one of the things that goes. So there's a line for both those, a line whether you get the, the new language of the old thoughts right, and a line whether you... Um, your chastisement goes too far and takes away something really essential. And I wonder, is it the same line in both cases? Can you use the same measure to tell whether you're speaking the old doctrine in new words and whether or not you've given up more than you need to give up? Or is it different lines? And I wonder, in either case, if you could tell us how we go about figuring out whether we've done it right. <laughs> well, I think this is really one of the $6 million um questions about thinking uh, uh you know creatively and constructively about the doctrine of god today is that we are trying to speak to current problems um and any kind of construction theological construction is a dangerous business we need hard hats um and uh we often get it wrong uh, but I, I think part of my concern in my opening remarks is to, to get at something slightly different, which is that in systematic theology these days, uh, there are a number of systematic theologians who seem to think that um, retrieving the right theologian gets you what you need. And particularly at the moment, it's Thomas Aquinas. Thomas is the flavor of the month for, for various <laughs> reasons. Um, so the idea is... Yeah, yes, I thought you might like it. Uh, so the idea is that you, re you retrieve your termism, uh, and if you if you get that right, uh, and you, you you set out all your doctrinal ducks in a row, 
then you've done due diligence. That's what you need to do because we, you know, provided you 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 understand that um, Thomas is the, uh, the 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 theologian of choice for that kind of project of retrieval. That just doesn't seem to me to be enough. Um, and it, it seems to me that it's not enough because there are, you know, various concerns that we face today that uh, we need to address. And I think also because, uh, you know, it's at least arguable that um, Thomas may have got some things wrong. Um, he's not infallible. Um, it may well be that certain metaphysical claims he makes a mistake. And these things need to be argued for. We can't simply take it on trust. So that's really what I was trying to get at. I mean, I do think that um, the vast majority of theology, like the vast majority of philosophy, is probably false. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're all trying our best, philosophers and theologians, and, um, you know, the game is played. And sometimes we get it right, sometimes we don't. You ask, well, on what principle basis can we make those kinds of judgments? Well, it's complicated. And that's really what I was getting at when I was trying to talk about source of authority when we make theological judgments. Because we've got divine revelation as a control of some description. We've got the great tradition as a control of some description. We've got reason as a control of some description. But of course, different thinkers are going to privilege one or more of those uh, particular sources. And that's going to to color the sorts of judgments they come to in significant ways. And that's precisely why we're having this discussion here, right? I mean, um, you know, represented here, we've got at least four different views of the Trinity. That and I, At least some of those are going to be incommensurate with one another. They can't all be right. Maybe none of them are right. Hopefully one of them is right. <laughs> um, but that's, that's what I mean by the, the game being played. And to, so to, to simply say, oh, well, uh, we have to make a judgment, but how do we make a principal judgment call? Well, it much depends on what you're privileging and where the, um, the onus of um, emphasis lies in the theological judgments that you make. I mean, for yourself, for example, being both a Thomist and a Roman Catholic who takes the tradition um, very seriously, the conciliar, the, the kind of consensus of conciliar decisions on something like Christology, as you've made very clear in your two books on Christology, carries a lot of weight. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a kind of a significant doc, doctrinal control on what you want to say about the doctrine of God and, and Christology. But, you know, you're going to get Protestants like William Hasker, who's going to come out along and say, well, I just, I don't feel the same pressure to ensure that my theological conclusions um, line up in the same way that Tim does, because I have a different account of the nature of tradition and the, the authority that it generates. So that's, that's right. That's what yeah. I have in mind. I like what you said there, Oliver, about um, about the flavor of the month and how it's not sufficient to act in that manner. And I think even for those who are drawn to Thomas, like I am, um, you might be saying what Thomas says, but you're not doing what Thomas does in the situation. Because if you look at, for instance, his treatment of the Latin averroists, those who thought that um, there is only a single substantial form that all human persons have. He doesn't just say, well, that's a novelty and that's kind of silly. And if you just look at what Augustine said, you'll see it's wrong. He instead takes, if I recall correctly, 24 different arguments for the truth of that claim in his Thomistic way. You know, here's a first argument, here's a second, and then he rebuts them all. So he's he's going to the contemporary notions in his milieu and he's giving his best arguments first giving their best arguments for the position and then giving his own arguments against it. So I think you're right. The um, Thomas says P, therefore P move is a very uh, unthomistic move to make. It's unscholastic, as Tom said earlier, too. Yeah, it seems to me that's right. Yeah. 
Guys, I have a question for you, uh, if you don't mind me jumping in here. So, you know, I, I'm super interested in, in this area, um, obviously. Uh, but one thing I think, Oliver, you mentioned and noticed where it does seem that at least in my Protestant circles, Thomas is a little bit of the flavor of the month. Um, can you talk to a little bit, uh, any of you guys, is like, is Thomas, like, do we need to have, like, Tim, I'm, obviously, I think you're going to have a good answer for this. Um do we need Thomas Aquinas to be within the great tradition or can we modify him in particular ways? Are there people outside of him who are doing similar things, making, but making different moves that we could say, yes, I think this is somebody who's within the tradition, but has some differences. I don't know who wants to take that question, but that's just, that's something that I've seen a lot. People have questions about, I have a question about it. I'm curious. So I don't know who wants to, answer that tim maybe tim you start your roman catholic and then scott you can take yeah. a stab at it and then Tom right, i will answer everybody <laughs> i'm gonna first go lock my door though in my office okay all right you don't need thomas aquinas he's <laughs> he's super good he's i think he's the way you should go but i think there's plenty of other views consistent with the orthodoxy that are worked out well um I know Tom, including concerning simplicity, Tom has worked him out in a little article, I want to say in an edited volume for the LA Theo, but I'm not sure, uh, different ways you can understand simplicity. My colleague, Mark Spencer, uh, whom I could take in a fight, so I didn't lock the door for his sake. I could take him if he came in. It's all the other Thomists I'm worried about in mass when I say you don't need Aquinas. Uh, my colleague, Mark Spencer, has a paper called the Fl the flexibility of divine simplicity, where he takes Polymus, Scotus, and Aquinas and talks about their the ways in which you can hold those views. He thinks you can hold them all together at once. Mark Mark likes to synthesize everything, um, but the, the point I'm trying to make is uh, Aquinas is not a necessary condition for good theology. Uh, I kind of think it is a fishing condition. I think if you have Aquinas, you can do a really good job of doing theology within orthodoxy, but I don't think it's a necessary condition. Scott, you want to take a stab at what you're going to say? And then Tom. Oh, sure. Um, so, I mean, I know medieval is the best. And so I'm best situated to comment on those people. And uh, having, you know, read way too much Scotus and Aquinas and others, I mean, I think then Scotus is massively underappreciated in his account of the Trinity in terms of secondary literature. Um, I'm tempted to say, though, I won't assert that Scotus has the most refined account of Trinity in the history of the tradition. Um, it, it's tempting to say that once you get into the details of it. Um, uh, and much improvements on Aquinas, uh, I think, uh, on various issues regarding, issues regarding simplicity. simplicity um, I mean, he's got the formal distinction. That's what we needed. Um, yeah, uh, but I also think that uh, anybody who reads a lot of the tradition and is philosophically attuned um, is going to be better placed than somebody who has the one favorite interlocutor, I think, because one of the rules in graduate school is whoever your favorite person is, you have to find things you disagree with them about. If you're not open to that, then you're treating them like a cult figure and you're treating them like they're always right and you might treat them like they're infallible. And you might not read other people. Um, and I think that's a mistake, right? So that's, you, I think you need to read widely in the, in the both in the, the ancient world um, 
And in the, I mean, I'll just give a plug for Johannes Zakuber's book, um, his discussion of Trinitarian theology in the 400s, 500s, and 600s is important because a lot of, so what the thing that Tim did in his talk was um, start with Christology and then go to the Trinity. That's precisely the sort of a historical trajectory that happened. You had the Cappadocians who said stuff about the Trinity, you know, all these discussions about the incarnation. And then a bunch of people say, wait, we're talking about person and nature. And we said that in the Trinity. So how does that work? And then there were problems that were raised regarding that. And so you had to have revisions of the Cappadocians in the 600s um, because their account of person didn't quite work in the case of the Trinity when you wanted to say that the divine nature is a singular thing. Um, anyways, yeah, so that's all I'll say, I guess. Thanks, Scott. Tom, what, what do you have? So I want to say amen to almost everything Tim said. Um, no, seriously, it's great. Um, I am often in, you know, close, sometimes just almost in awe of, of, of Thomas. Um, I don't think you need him for good theology. I also want to say amen to what Scott said. And on some things, I think that other, other figures, other medieval theologians actually correct him well and, and give us something better. Um, amen to formal distinction, big time. Um, totally with that. But what I really want to say is, uh, I want to say something about the distinctly Protestant scholastic reception of these figures. Um, because sometimes people draw like there's a sort of straight line, like um, the the reform and Lutheran scholastics, they just, they're Thomistic, especially the reformed. That's sort of the line one hears quite a bit. And yeah, there's some, obviously there's some truth to that. We should see that. But many times the actual evidence that's supplied in support of such claims, someone will say, Owen or so-and-so, you know, pick your, pick your favorite theologian is a Thomist. See, mm -hmm. he endorses simplicity, but you look at what's actually said about simplicity and it's what pretty much anyone could have said from the tradition about simplicity. And, and you can see that going on and on. So here's the thing, um, two points about the, about the Protestant scholastic reception of these medieval theologians. And these points are in addition to the points made by Muller and, and David Seitzman, all these really good work, all this really good work that's been done. I'm making two points in, in addition to those. And the first is, is that in many cases, I think it's pretty clear that these Protestant scholastics had their medieval scholasticism to them, both directly, but also in many cases in ways that were mediated. So they're reading the Salamanca theologians, they're reading Suarez, they're getting things in a mediated way. So even where it's Thomist, it would be a school of Thomism um, that's sometimes feeding that. And secondly, they're not just, even the ones we think of as Thomist, many cases are not just rolling with Thomas. Like he said, we believe it, that settles it for us. That's just not what's going on. Um, Turretin, for instance, when he's wrestling with the Trinity and simplicity um, question, one of, the, one of the worries that arises with that, of course, is if, if there's no real distinction between person and essence, but there is supposed to be a real distinction between person and person, then given transitivity of identity, we got a problem. And when you see Turretin wrestling with this, he reaches for the modal distinction. The modal distinction is not something you're going to find in Thomas Aquinas. It isn't. It is something you're going to find in, in Suarez and the Suarezians. I mean, it's just there. Um, he thinks that's the third way to think about distinctions. 
And whether or not it actually works for the doctrine of the Trinity, like Turretin thinks it's going to, that's another discussion. Short answer, it doesn't. But um, whether or not it does is another thing. My point is just the methodological point. The Reformed and, and Lutheran scholastics are not just saying Thomas got it right, and now we're just going to tweak the parts we don't like about, say, justification or whatever. They're not. They're receiving this deeper, broader medieval and patristic tradition. They, in many cases, have a lot of appreciation for Aquinas, but they're not afraid to make corrections as they go. It's, and it, it's, the corrections aren't just on the doctrine of the church or, or something like that, or, or justification. The corrections also occur in their discussions of the doctrine of God. All right. Sorry. That's enough. That's helpful. Thanks, Tom. Um, Scott, go ahead. I have a question for Tim. Um, so you, you claim that uh, a person is simple because they've got a simple nature, or if they got a simple nature. Is that all there is to say about a person? I mean, it seems like a divine person is going to be not simple if we think that they also have a attribute or a part that is not the divine nature. And this is this is the you know the personal properties. Um, so if you have a person who's constituted by the simple nature and a personal property, you might think the person is not simple in virtue of those two constituents. So if we ignore the personal constituent, sure, you can say they're, they're simple, but they've got some other incommunicable property that would make a person more complex than the divine nature. So what do you think? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm going to ask you a, a question about what the medievals thought first, and I'll, then I'll tell you my answer. But, uh, but it's a short it's a short question. The question, did any of those guys who thought you had a composite of a divine nature and a personal property in a, in a divine person, did any of those guys deny simplicity? Or did they think that simplicity was still affirmed even when you had a thing that had a divine nature and a personal property with it? I thought they all affirmed simplicity still but you know this stuff better than I do. Yeah. Um, let me think. Yeah, they're all going to want to say simplicity, right, is made true by the nature. But but if we're talking about the persons themselves, it seems like... So Henry of Ghent, and he kind of got this language going, saying that persons are constituted. The language of... So he rejects composition, so the basic difference between composition and constitution is whether the parts are separable or inseparable, right? So, and if you have inseparable parts, then that could be consistent with the count of simplicity if it just means whatever's there necessarily is there and there's no counterfactual where there's one lacking. Um, so, I, yeah, um, yeah, I don't, I think the, the medieval is probably fit with what you're saying though. SCOTUS might not because he thinks that a personal property is um, is finite, and the divine nature is infinite. So a divine person has a finite part and an infinite part. Hmm. But he he affirmed divine simplicity too. I would, I thought he did. Yeah. Well, with okay. formal distinctions. Yeah. Yeah. As long as as long as all those guys are happy to affirm that a thing can be simple and have a divine nature and also have another whatever it is, a mode, a, a doodad, have another ontological doodad, both together to give you the thing in question, then they're thinking simplicity doesn't require, they're thinking simplicity doesn't require complexity. Sorry. They're thinking simplicity can be had in a thing that's complex in some sense. And the only thing I'm seeing there that's that's simple in the 
the way I typically think of simplicity is the divine nature in such a case. But that's just what the theory I'm giving offers is you're simple insofar as your nature is uh, wholly without parts. So I would take those guys in their view and the fact that nobody called foul on them. Hey, wait a second. As some evidence that they were thinking of simplicity more in line with what I've given here and less in line with what I started with the has no parts or differentiation in any respect, no matter what period. I think that's too strong for a Christian. One follow-up question before I do want to give the audience a chance. Oliver, I've got a question for you. I think you are, if I'm correct, are probably the most steeped in reform tradition of the guys here. Maybe, maybe Tom, you know it, um, but I guess here at Wesley, and I don't know, does that count as reformed? Maybe, maybe it does. Um, Oliver Arminius was a reformed pastor. Yeah, there you go. So we'll, we'll count it. Um, when it comes to the 39 articles, I think, I, or the Westminster Confession of Faith, I think they both use sort of the same terminology when it comes to divine simplicity, where it's without body parts or passions. Mm-hmm. And maybe like we mentioned, Tom, your studies in this would piggyback on this a little bit, but what account of simplicity is that requiring someone to to believe if they want to confess what's what what that confession says because looking at it just the words it seems pretty thin but if you want to look at what the authors thought themselves i think from my reading it seems like there's a more robust account behind the scenes more akin to something like the identity thesis so is there a way to reconcile those confessions with different models of divine simplicity or or not I think yes, because I think they actually are—they don't commit you to um, a, a sort of high. They don't necessarily commit you to a high octane account of divine simplicity. Um, but I do think that uh, here you might want to raise questions about authorial intention. So I mean, one one question when it comes to confessional and creedal documents, a bit like when it comes to biblical documents is not just what the documents themselves say or imply or entail, uh, but you might also think what the authors intended to convey, if you think that that adds a further level of potential hermeneutical complexity. Um, my own view is that, that um, those theologians in, in the kind of reformed tradition who are confessional um, and who take the confessionalism seriously should um, seek to take into account the, uh, the dogmatic statements of the confessions, but they're not necessarily committed to the views of the authors themselves, since they're not, it seems to me, part and parcel of the confessions. And in the case of without bodily parts and passions, I think what we're committed to if you take those confessions um, at face value is that um, God does not have essentially body, um, which of course is orthodox, he doesn't uh, have parts. Well, that was ambiguous between lots of different things that that could be, metaphysically speaking. And he doesn't have passions. Again, that's ambiguous, but it's certainly consistent with the majority view that that God is, um, in some important sense, essentially uh, unchangeable uh, and unchangeable in his passions in particular. Um, so, I mean, it seems to me that that's, that still leaves wide open a, a range of views on just how simple the divine nature actually is. Tom, did you have a follow-up? Yeah, I mean, uh, yes. Um, so as Oliver said, 
Arminius was a Reformed theologian in good standing in the Reformed Church of the Netherlands when he died. He lost a vote a decade after he was gone. Um, and of course, there's lots of stuff, about, right? But here's the interesting thing. Not only do the um, people who are, are not, well, let me, let me say it this way first. To your question, I don't think that the confessions dictate exactly which version of the doctrine of simplicity must be believed. I just don't think they do. And when we look at the major Reformed theologians who sort of fit in, I guess it depends on who's canon, right? Um, and even that's going to be ambiguous. But the, the people of the Mueller guild, right? The, that, that sort of stuff. There isn't, again, just one view of this. Um, and, and if there is, it certainly isn't going to be exactly Aquinas's view. Um, it, it minimally, they're going, to, they're going to endorse a view according to which there are genuine distinctions, uh, fundamentum in re. Now, which understanding of that we've got to go with is also debatable. My point here is not to settle all that, it's to say there's, gen, there's considerable complexity in the Reformed tradition on this point. It's not infinitely elastic or like anything goes, but yeah, I, my understanding of it is there, there is, um, there is a range within the reformed tradition. But secondly, I also want to point out since Arminius did come up that Arminius has a doctrine of simplicity. It looks to be more along the house and lineage of Scotus. He explicitly endorses a formal distinction and then uses it in various places. But sometimes this gets put out as if, uh, there's a story that sort of gets told, like the reformed hold to this quote unquote classical doctrine of God with simplicity. And then of course, because of that, they get this whole doctrine of this whole soteriology and a doctrine of predestination. Everything falls out from that. And that itself, uh, my reading of the, of the relevant parts, some relevant parts of this tradition run very differently than that, because there are also, uh, they're also, broadly speaking, Arminian, both Remonstrant, but also sort of Anglo-Arminian types who are scholastics, and Lutheran scholastics who all affirm divine simplicity, but then in some cases wield it against Reformed doctrines of predestination and the divine will. In other words, in other words, it's, they're saying to the Reformed, sometimes directly, like Gerhard de Zonke, for instance, you say these things about simplicity— Amen and hallelujah. But if you take these things about simplicity seriously, you can't say these things about the divine will, not with any consistency. Again, I'm not weighing passing judgment um, or weighing in on who gets that stuff right. I'm just saying there are different accounts of simplicity that get used differently within and across these Protestant scholastic traditions. So I have really hard time thinking if you're going to go with Westminster or the, the three forms of unity or whatever, you've got to say, endorse a particular account of what simplicity is. Good stuff. So I do want to give people in the audience a chance to ask questions. So Ryan, I know um, you had a question and I was going to let you go first since you chatted me directly. Um, I will, if you turn on your video, I'll add you. Um, to this section here. So I think okay. you all know Ooh, that. Fancy, fancy. Uh, okay, so I'm having a bit of cognitive dissonance here. So I'm hoping maybe you guys can help me out. So I keep hearing this assertion that there's these all these different views of divine simplicity in the tradition. And so Oliver's like, okay, let's get rid of uh, you know, this pure act stuff. Maybe God's got some properties. And I'm like, hey, that sounds great, but I reject divine simplicity. So you know, what's the difference between you and me? 
And then I keep hearing Tom say, look, again, all these different versions of divine simplicity in the tradition. And I'm curious if there's a different way to read the history of Western thought here. So one way to read it might be this. Christians, Jews, Muslims, they all knew exactly what simplicity was, but a bunch of Christians decided to continually fudge on what they meant it is. And here's why I think that. So when I look at just focusing on the Muslim tradition, when I get to the 10 hundreds and what becomes the majority view in the Muslim tradition is to go, there's this thing called simplicity. It's you know, no attributes, no properties, no forms, no, none of this nonsense, no parts. We hate that. We hate that view. It's against Quran. What we're going to say instead is God has distinct attributes, has distinct acts, or has one act, but it's not identical to the divine nature. And so I'm like, okay, well, that sounds like they know what simplicity is. And they go, Al-Maturidi, Al-Ghazali, all these others go, yeah, we know what simplicity is. It's false. And we're going to affirm a view that looks identical to Oliver Crisp's view. And I'm like, okay, cool. I know what, I know, okay, I can understand this. But then you guys are like, oh, no, no, no. There's all these different views of simplicity. And I'm like, I don't, I don't think I understand this now. What it sounds more reasonable to me is this Muslim view of going, we know what simplicity is. Either you like it or you don't. Instead of going with a bunch of these other views of going, ooh, yeah, there's a bunch of views of simplicity. So help me with this cognitive dissonance. Which, which should I go with? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll take a first step. Uh, it strikes me that there are different ways of thinking about the, the, the unity of the divine nature in the tradition. We've, we've spoken of several of them already this, in this session. Um, and... Uh, it's a bit like, you know, how warm do you want your water to be in your bath? It can be tepid, it can be warm, it can be extremely warm, or it can strip your skin off. Uh, now, it would still be warm, even if it's not going to strip your skin off, but tepid, it's not that warm. And you might not want that because you get chilly pretty quickly. Um, similarly, it seems to me with respect to thinking about the unity of the divine nature in the tradition, there are going to be some people who think... Um, Warm is warm enough. Some who want an account of divine unity that's going to strip your skin off. And some people who think all of that stuff is really not very helpful. And the best way to think about these things is to be a little bit tepid. Um, uh, so I think that there's evidence of that sort of difference in the tradition. And there's been recent work, recent responsible historical work on this sort of stuff that's pointed out that there's more than one way of carving up this cake in the tradition. Um, sure, there are going to be some people who, uh, on the one hand, claim that they're defending some doctrine of divine simplicity, but secretly are overturning in what they actually teach, or some people who sort of say, okay, maybe this is part of the tradition, but sotto voce, uh, we're not going to endorse the tradition on this point. Of course, that's going to be true as well. Um, but I don't, I don't think that, um, well, it seems, it would seem odd to me to think that a lot of these, these sort of historic theologians who thought they could endorse some doctrine of divine simplicity and something like the doctrine of the Trinity were all either doing the sotto voce thing or were fudging it or in, in some other way being disingenuous in the account that they gave of the divine nature. That seems extremely unlikely to me. Scott, you had a follow-up? Oh, sure. Uh, just to respond to Ryan's question, I'll give you three examples of trajectory. And you can read all this. Garrett Smith wrote his PhD at Notre Dame and finished like 2013 on history of divine attributes um, from Aquinas to Occam. And so he shows that with Aquinas, the divine attributes are distinct as conceived by creatures um, rooted in the divine nature, but they're distinct as creatures think about God. So God's relationship to creatures 
is a necessary condition for the distinction of divine attributes. Henry of Ghent rejects this sort of view. He says, no, 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 God doesn't need any creatures thinking about God in order for the attributes to be distinct, rather they're distinct in God's own thoughts. At least that's what Garrett says. I have a textual disagreement with more details about that. But then Scotus says, no, 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 the divine attributes are distinct prior to anybody's thinking about the divine nature. Um, um, so there, each of them claim divine simplicity, uh, but each of them have a different ontological account of the truth makers for distinction of divine attributes. And those are just three scholastics. There's, there's several others who have rather ways of try to nuance it. Um, but, and you also know there are distinctions in the, the Islamic tradition too. Fans of Avicenna are going to um, think we can talk about God meaningfully. You mean some, the later Avicenna have univocal concepts um, of divine attributes and some of his followers like Altusi is going to think we can have some univocal concepts of God that are distinct prior to any um, thoughts, right? And then there's uh, Alshar Rastani who said, no, 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 no. God is so different from us, all language is equivocal, right? <laughs> and so um, all of those people might claim divine simplicity um, and they just mean might mean something like God is a necessary being, like Avicenna taught us. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Tim, Tom, any... Any follow-up on that question? Okay. All right. So I've got, so far, I've received two other questions. Um, this one might be a little bit short. I'm not sure. And I think, Tom, you've done some work on this. So one of them that was chatted in here, given the recent debates among Calvinistic Baptists, which I'm not expecting you all to know all that goes on with that very small subsegment of denominational life, is the idea of eternal relations of authority or eternal functional subordination submission, whatever the, I feel like there's 10 different acronyms for the same thing. Um, in the Trinity, is that view compatible with the great tradition in any way? So can you take the idea that the son eternally submits, even in a functional way, um, and make it fit with the tradition? And I don't know, Tim, I don't know if you're familiar with that view or not, or if any of you guys are. So I'll let whoever wants to take that one, take that. I'll just respond briefly that if the son submits to the father, then the son might have an act that the father doesn't have. So you've already got some kind of account of personhood there um, that might motivate it. I mean, there are other motivations for that sort of debate, but suppose you don't have that kind of account of the Trinity, which is the common sort of view in the tradition, um, right? Then this, this the idea of that the son eternally is sub submissive to the father it's just not going to get off the ground because the divine person shared numerically the same operations. Um, if you think of the divine persons as distinct individuals, subjects of distinct thoughts, then yeah, you can think that the son could theoretically uh, be submissive to the father and the father's not submitting to uh, himself. Any follow-ups on that one? No, I'm sorry. I fear I don't know much about the recent debates among Calvinistic Baptists. Sorry about that. I've, I've my views on this. I mean, I've, I've made, I've killed too many trees on this already. I don't really have a whole lot more to say. Um, but except to say that there are differences at multiple levels. Scott's indicated some. I mean, just issues with respect to the whole framework of the doctrine of the Trinity underneath the actual question that's at, at stake. 
I, um, I, here's where I'm going to go. You know, someone like a, someone like uh, Thomas Aquinas addresses this stuff directly. Doesn't call it Arian or fairly directly. Doesn't call it Arianism, but says it's better to avoid the. Um, it's better to avoid this to avoid the error of the Arians. Um, it, it basically, I do want to add that there. One caveat: uh, Bo Branson has done work in some patristic theology. It's not the same thing as the Wayne Grudem, Bruce Ware view by any stretch, but I just want to alert that there may be some complexities there that places people might be able to find some um, some room. I will say that finally, there is direct patristic precedent for a view much like this uh, recent Baptist view in the fourth century. The most direct precedents are the non-Nicene views. Um not necessarily Aryan views, but like some of the Homoians type statements, uh, like their macro stitch um, and other statements come, come a lot closer. Whether, whether you take that as a vote of, uh, of support for the doctrine or a, or a vote against it is another question. Which and I think have... Bo, Bo's yeah. here actually. So if, if you want to chat something, you're welcome to chat it. Oh, you're, you're not to be trusted. Fair enough. The liar's paradox there, Bo. <laughs> Scott, you were going to say something? Oh, yeah. So you may find such a view among some of the Miaphysite Trinitarian theologians in the 500s and 600s, uh, which is the view that's rejected by Constantinople III. And according to them, right, the number of personal acts is according to the number of divine persons. You got three persons, you got three um, distinct or three mental acts or acts of will. Um, so their kind of model would be consistent with the idea of what a one divine person submitting to another. Um, yeah. Um, more on that some other time. Which remind me, all you got, you would say, each of you, you affirm like Nicaea, Nicaea, uh, Chalcedon, all that. So everybody's in agreement. Scott, are you in agreement? I can't remember. Sorry, I was reading a comment. Was agreement to what? So Nicaea and Chalcedon, you would say, yes, two thumbs up. Those, Those are accurate summations of what the tradition has thought and should be believed. And Constantinople three. And Constantinople three, which yeah. I'm good with. Which that. affirms the Nicene Constantinople Creed also. Okay. Because I do think when I've seen, there's been, I mean, just a ton of discussion on this. And it seems like uh, there's worries that if you don't take a very hard line stance on certain things, then you are outside of Nicaea or others. So let's see, we've got a couple of questions have come in. Oh, here, I think this is interesting. What issues do to do with classical theism need more work or attention from the next generation of let's, he said analytic theologians, but I'll just say theologians in general, what, what, what areas should be focused on? So I'll say a little bit about that. Um, I can only speak from my perspective. I, I think it'd be cool to hear what uh, like non-Christian folks thought about that question too. But from my perspective, <clears throat> I think it'd be great if there was more discussion of questions of authority in the, in the ecclesia so like um in virtue of what is this to be trusted or that to be trusted why trust this canon billy abraham did great work on the canon um i'd like to see uh an upcoming generation of analytic folks pick up that work and keep doing that sort of work trying to determine the, the principles we can employ to determine what's authoritative and not and why that's more epistemology i do mostly metaphysics and this stuff but i'd like to know the epistemology better so someone else should do that work for me so i can read it Uh, 
Oliver, do you have any thoughts on that one? Well, I mean, I, I'm not sure whether I've got something that is specific as a project for up-and-coming um, theologians. I, I, I do agree with what um, Tim's just said. I think more work on the, the notion of authority and theological authority is probably sorely needed at this point in time. Um, there are interesting issues along the way, but I'm not sure it's going to take a generation to resolve them. So, for example, there's, some, there's been some recent interest in theological fictionalism of various sorts. Um, which might have a bearing on what you think about the doctrine of God, but I take it that that's a sort of that's a sort of local dispute. It's it's really to do with certain people who have a particular interest in in whether or not um, uh, you should be a kind of theological realist or anti-realist of a particular kind, and, and what that commits you to, um, you know, in terms of doctrine of God, liturgy, things like that. So I'm not sure that's really a project for an entire generation, though I think it's an interesting. Um, current topic of debate that bears on these questions. I would like to see the. Um, I'd like to see more good work done on the issues that are that are getting attention, like the stuff we're talking about today. I don't think we we're done with these discussions, but also would like to see contemporary work that's informed by the tradition uh, and and analytic and orientation, whether harder or softer versions or whatever. I, I would like to see that go in a couple different directions as well, methodologically. One, um, more engagement with, um, this is this is hard, I've tried a little bit, but it, it's not easy for me at least, but more engagement with um, actual biblical scholarship and indeed, indeed scripture, Christian scripture, and going a very different direction uh, methodologically. I'd like to see more of it engaged with um, insights from, social sciences and natural science, um, especially, I mean, um, there, there are some really challenging issues. Oliver keeps talking about our, our time, like theology for our day. Mm -hmm. And there are a whole host of issues that are really important in our day that really could use a good dose of analytic theological clarity and engagement, uh, hopefully bringing some of the wisdom of the Christian tradition forward um, I, I'd like to see more of that done as well, and, and I hope I hope people will will step up. I don't want to see. Let me just say this: if I can say this, I, I don't want to see the sort of analytic theology project um, or the adjacent sort of retrieval projects um, sort of devolve into antique collecting projects. Um, where you know we could sort of align our our relics, uh, in, you know our sort of um, intellectual relics, and then invite each other over to our to our to our uh, showrooms and say I've got all these lined up and I've got these lined up, and and sort of congratulate ourselves that we're we're really in touch with some really smart people who came before us. Uh, I I hope we don't do that, um, and and I hope that analytic theology doesn't turn into just sort of a, a spinoff of what really smart metaphysics folk do when they're kind of bored and interested <laughs> on their way home from Sunday school or something like that. Right. Um, I do want to let uh, one more question come in before we wrap up. Uh, Brandon Smith, do you want to turn on your camera? I'll let you ask it since I know you. Um, so you get special treatment. Let's see here. I, I'll pin you up here to spotlight you. 
if, if he's paying attention, still muted and still. So he asked a question. I'm going to put him on the spot. So he said, uh, is, oh, what do you say? I'm in a car driving. Okay. Car. Well, good for you. So Brandon, he said, is there an entailment of classical theism that anyone might say is easiest to discard? Uh, so he gave some examples, singular will, eternal generation, uh, Sadie. Um, and he said, I use this term as it's being used among many writing on topic on the topic, recognizing it's a loose term. So what can you get rid of in your classical theism? Yeah. What's the easiest one to say? This is the most negotiable, or is it just a complete package? Cause I think a lot of classical theists will say everything entails one another. So I don't know if you can really get one without kind of tumbling the, the Jenga the Jenga tower. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, um, I do think it's a metaphysical package deal, for sure. But of course, uh, the package can be packaged in different ways, right? There's not a single version of classical theism. So um, various things can be negotiated. We've even been talking today about ways in which um, a particular account of divine simplicity can be negotiated or a particular account of the divine trinity. Um, but I think probably there are ways in which one might want to um, negotiate some of the divine predicates that um, are often or have in the past often have been talked about, whether they're the omnipredicates or eternity or immutability or aseity or ultimacy. Um, perhaps not ultimacy, but I mean, aseity is an interesting one, depending on how you construe that. Um, Roman Catholics seem to uh, think that Seti is really terribly important these days and, and very much non-negotiable um, as it has um, as it bears on things like the doctrine of creation and whether or not the created order is really related to God and stuff like that. Well, I don't know. That, that seems to me to be something that would be worth thinking through with some care. It does have all sorts of entailments that are very peculiar, it seems to me. Tom? Uh, I again want to say that um i do think that there's more uh i agree with oliver that in some sense these these things are packaged and uh doctrinal commitments on any level have entailments for other you know other issues and other other topics so yeah these do go, there are ways in which of course these do go together as package deals but i i just want to sorry i keep saying these things but i do want to slightly complicate these discussions a bit um, Brandon's question, as I'm seeing it, is in does have classical theism and scare quotes now, um, but he refers to singular will, and that is not as straightforward or as easy as we might sometimes make it out to be. To even to think about um, that, um, yes, in some sense there is a singular will. That that's just basic. I think basic to, to traditional views. But as like uh, Khaled Anatolios, you know, in his patristic work says, there are distinct um, inflections of, of this divine will. There are agreements of this divine will among the three divine persons. So it, it's slightly odd to me and not necessarily a good sign, I think, when people who are often quick to, um, they're quick to criticize importation of univocity into theology, right? When it comes to singular will, we just assume we know what it means, and we just sort of tap out whatever we take to be as, as the, the psychological notion that's just sort of common sense. Then we just push that out and say, yep, there's obviously one of those in God. 
I don't think it's quite that straightforward or simple. Uh, yes, there's some sense in which this is a singular will, but do we just take a common sense psychological notion and then just push that up to God and say, obviously, that's what this is? That doesn't seem to me like a very good move either. Um, and again, not one that's even, I think, arguably traditional. So thanks. Scott, you had something? Oh, um, uh, Brandon suggested, could we get rid of eternal generation? If you want to be a conciliar Christian, you can't get rid of gen eternal generation. Uh, what distinguishes the persons are, right? One of them, the sons dis distinguished by eternal generation. Um, whatever else you want to say. One mistake some people make, I can't remember, or somebody here, my father made this mistake before, regarding aseity. You might think that aseity is a personal property as well as an essential property. But in the, at least the, a lot of the tradition I've read is aseity is meant in two ways, right? So the father is ase as a person, not from another person, but the son is from another person as a person. Regarding the son's nature, the son's nature or the essence is ase, not from another essence. Um, so this is going to be a big point of dispute between the Christians and people like Avicenna. They're going to distinguish between person and nature. And some divine persons are ase as a person, namely only the father, but not the son and the spirit. But in terms of their singular nature, they are ase because they're not from another numerically distinct nature. Um, yeah, some people might want to give up on the whatever the relational distinctions between the divine persons. But if you do that, you might, I mean, I think that tritheism is very quickly around the corner. Um, and tritheism is bad because it doesn't fit with Christian revelation, I don't think. Um, the scriptures. Anyways. Cool. Thanks, Scott. Any closing comments from any of you guys? Because I know we're over time. Yeah, I'd just like to say thank you to Jordan. You did a great job with this. I know it's been, you know, kind of uh, unsettling to get going, but you did a great job. Uh, Tim, Oliver, Scott, I love you guys. Always good to, to be with you, even in this way. Uh, and I know we've had several dozen people hanging out and patiently throwing up questions, some of which we didn't get to. Sorry about that. And thank you very much. Um, hope our paths cross and, and soon. Thanks. Yeah. So let me You're just here. recommend to all of you, you need to go buy their books. You, you need to read their articles. Uh, and you have opportunities to study with them. So if you're interested in studying with them, you should probably reach out, uh, whether that's at master's level or doctoral. I don't know, Scott, if you have doctoral level at UNC Asheville or not. But you have a chance to study with all of them in some way. So I, I would encourage you to look at those opportunities um, because I think these are for the very best and brightest uh, scholars out there on this topic. And plus, they have a, a way of going about it that is right and honorable. So, I, I mean, sometimes the, the debates in this sort of stuff can get heated because we're talking about God, and that matters a lot. Um, but they carry themselves re very well and respectably and honorably. And I, I really, uh, I think we want to commend those, those sort of attitudes when it comes to this topic. So thank you to you four for doing that and doing that throughout this panel. Uh, hopefully for everybody's listening, this has really helped you, challenged you, stretched you, give you something to think about, encouraged you. Um, and we thank you for hanging in there through the changing platforms and me having to mute everybody individually and all that kind of stuff because I'm, I'm not good with that. We're good with this, but I need to get better for next time. So thanks, everybody. This has been awesome. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank thanks, you. Man. Thank you. Bye. Yeah. See ya.
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.